Good morning. I'll be reading um, from John chapter 1, 35 to 51. Jesus' first disciples. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard that John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brothers Simon and tell, tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, you will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Jesus calls Philip and Nathanael. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Good morning, everybody. Um, in case any of you are a little surprised for the ring-in, I will apologise in advance that no one else was available, so they asked me to share with you today. The band have offered me safe passage out into the car park if there's anyone, anything anyone gets particularly offended about. Um, but a joke, I'm sure you'll all be gracious with me. Um, before we start, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you that you've given us your word and that it's true and it's trustworthy and that we can uh, let our hearts meditate on it, that you can feed and nourish the desperate longings within us with your word and your spirit and we might uh, find fullness of joy in following your will and discerning what that means for us. So, Father... Use me and fill all of us with nourishment from your word. Amen. So, um, if I knew how to do fancy tech things, I would probably get that umama Mao part from Russell Morris's Come and See. Those of you who are a little older than me will know what I'm talking about when I'm referring to that. Um, what we see in this little section of John is... Uh, some key characters being introduced to the narrative 
and uh, each one leading the other to come and see, um, obviously come and see the real thing, we might say, if we we're following the song, but uh, certainly to them it was come and see the real thing, the thing that was hotly anticipated for several hundred years by uh, many people in uh, Israel around the time of Jesus. So let's just park that thought for a second. Um, I greatly appreciated Jose's prayer. Mountains are special places to me. I grew up in the Blue Mountains, and so uh, very regularly I like to find myself back there to feel connected to those kinds of places. There's not too many places quite like that where you can feel kind of lost in how big stuff is. Um, I, I don't mind the feeling of being out on a little boat in the middle of the Manning because it's big and you get that feeling of being really small, but in my heart of hearts I have to say nothing quite feels the same as being near mountains. And this mountain here that you can see, it's Mount Bogong in uh, northeastern Victoria. And um, I spend a fair bit of time down in the border country because of work. And uh, a year or so ago, I had the good fortune of spending a uh, summer weekend there whilst I was doing some work stuff. And my wife graciously stayed at home with our kids. So I pretended like nothing else mattered. And on a Sunday morning, I got in my car and went for a drive. And those of you who sort of know the Riverina and the border country will also kind of know that, I don't know, to me, compared to the Blue Mountains, it's kind of, you know, there's some hills and stuff, but it's not particularly that um, capturing as far as physical beauty. And ironically, I was, had my heart set, we're going to drive out to a little town called Mount Beauty. And as you drive uh, in the little winding roads towards Mount Beauty, there's something that really hits you if you lift your eyes a little bit, and it's that scene. Um, I don't know if you've uh, ever been to uh, like the New South Wales ski fields, or but when you first get a glimpse of a mountain with snow on top for the first time, you're going like, hang on, that's really big, yeah? And uh, so... I unfortunately didn't, ha I'm not a photo taker, so this isn't one of mine, but if I could, you know, take you to the place as you drive in, there's like a little stop that you can make and get out of the road and, and take a photo and capture that big uh, whopping great mountain in the background. And then I expect though, after you've lived there long enough, you kind of don't really lift your eyes that much to, to look to see that the mountain's there. Um, I, I guess I got the same sort of feeling heading there as I used to get when I drive into Gloucester. Though apart from the uh, state of the road, I think the Buckets Way is a great drive, so it's a nice day. If you want to go out and get a feel and apply this, then I would wholeheartedly recommend it. But when you drive uh, into towards Gloucester and you get to the top of the Mogranai lookout, you sort of get this opposite view of looking down into the valley, and if it's the right kind of day with the right sort of light, and you get those that view of the sunlight piercing through the clouds over the valley, it makes for one of those kind of near spiritual moments of just seeing how beautiful um, those sorts of places can be. But I tell you, I don't really spend a lot of time anymore getting out of the car at the lookout to take photos. I kind of just drive into Gloucester, do what I've got to do and, and get out. 
And, and even in Taree, you, you, some of you might have seen it, um, when you get to the top of Four Mile Hill as you're about to come down into Taree, if you look straight ahead on a clear day, you can see the, the top of the, the Lansdowne Escarpment um, and you can even, like, to the right, see the South Brother, which is a pretty long way off from that point, but you're up high enough just to get a glimpse ahead. But if you're busy going about your business and you've got your head down, you just don't really see it. And the Gospel of John is a little bit like that if we get a bit complacent with it. It's a little bit like one of those backdrop sceneries to things where we go, you know, it's another story for us about, um, about uh, Jesus and, and his disciples and what happened and he did some cool stuff and then we get to the business of Easter and, and we're, all, we're all good. Um, let's carry on with the story. This all feels so familiar. But the, I, I actually think that um, the Gospel of John is a little bit like taking, taking one of those meandering drives to come to some places where you, could, you just need to get out and see for yourself the stuff that's actually there. And so um, that's what we're going to try and do um, in, in looking afresh at this section of the Gospel of John. Now, the important thing, if we were to try and just take this part of the Gospel out and think, like, what's its purpose or its point, there's some really important language around or important use of storytelling here that shows us just how trustworthy the stuff that's con- contained wherein in, in the first chapter of John and moving forward, just how trustworthy it is. Um, to have two witnesses to something in Jewish culture would tell us that it's verifiable fact, and we don't just get two witnesses, we get successive um, series of people going and getting someone else to see, and then that person goes, how good is this? Let's go and get someone else to come and see. And the, the problem with us reading this now in looking back to a, a different culture and a different time and a different space is for us to really appreciate just what uh, John the Baptist was saying about Jesus and just what Jesus was claiming at that time is a little hard for us because I know about any of you, but I'm not a first century, first century Jewish person and the way that I read things like the Lamb of God mean different things to me now, it might even be tied up a whole lot more in what we sung about, um, you know, worthy is the lamb and we're taken to revelation, we're taken to different places and and images. And so right now we want to try and transport ourselves back to a different time and culture to make this whole thing a little bit fresh. So to recap a few things, um, the first thing that I want to point out to you is that the Bible is, you know, we accept, in, at least in the Baptist tradition, that the Bible is uh, the inerrant word of God and that um, it's uh, infallible and that it's useful for teaching. But the thing that we kind of neglect by doing the, our practice of reading and, and studying the Bible is we take out little sections and we study them in isolation, but we can't forget that the Bible is one continuous story, many authors from the beginning of time and all creation to the advent of Jesus and then 
for the fulfillment of God's plan for all creation and time and space and us. And so I want us to consider the author of the gospel makes this pretty plain because he starts by echoing the words of the very first book of the scriptures in sort of recasting a creation story. And so we have to uh, put ourselves back in the context of uh, the author, who we assume to be the Apostle John, and to uh, begin to understand how he thinks so that we can get place ourselves in the um, right context to understand the, the things that he has to tell us. Now, another thing that's important for us to know about um, the Bible as one cohesive work is that it's made of different kinds of literature. Now, that might sound a little bit odd for some of you that, you know, I thought that the Bible was, you just said it was one story about, you know, creation to Jesus and then the fulfillment of God's work. But there's different kinds of literature in this collection that makes up the whole story. And so we often take our own modern view of what history should be. And if the Gospels tell us history, then we should understand um, that, you know, there are historical facts being laid plain for us to understand, and this should be all pretty cut and dry, right? But believe it or not, history, the way that we read it, didn't exist at the time of um, the writings that we have that make up the Bible and, and the Gospels themselves. They fit far more into the description of a biography. And if we think about John's Gospel as a, his biography of Jesus then we can get a better sense as well of what some of the devices and the way he uses language might actually mean. Because if I, if I was to send you to Wikipedia to understand about Jesus, which you can do, it, believe it or not, there's more pages on uh, Jesus in Wikipedia than any other topic. So if we're going for how important universally Jesus is to all of time and space and history, whether you're Christian or not, we're probably putting him up there as, as you know time person of all history. Um, but equally, when we read a biography, sometimes the facts are sort of put in different orders to help paint a better picture and a story of what the author is trying to tell us. Um, so, let's have a look at what some of those things are that John has been trying to, to tell us as we um, go through at least just the story so far. So, there's obviously a recasting of the creation story at the, at the beginning. Um, what's important about that is the creation story was central to being a, a Jewish person throughout all of history and, and time. Those of you that have spent much time reading through some of the more tedious sections, the, the ones that are a little harder to read in the Old Testament about the con construction of the, the temple, you know, all the stories about how many pomegranates are going to be there and how big's the thing going to be and all of this sort of stuff. We probably go, oh, if you're anything like me anyway, you're probably tempted to, to flick through those bits because I don't really need to draw my own schematic. I get it. It was a thing. Let's move on. But the, the creation of, uh, of, of the creation story in Genesis is something that leaves echoes throughout uh, Jewish history and practice. And it's tied up as well in, in the temple. 
And the temple's another important um, device that John wields out, particularly because, and it's hard for us to read in our own English translation, but to the people reading this in the original Greek and being a, you know, a Jewish person reading it in my own context, when John talks about uh, Jesus coming to dwell with humankind, he's talking about Jesus coming to tabernacle with humankind, to set up a kind of new temple, which is you know, odd language for us to kind of translate from the original into our own English to, you know, that uh, the author is using this kind of metaphorical speak. But the original readers would have known what that was about and, and they would go, okay, something strange is, is going on here. You're saying that this person who is walking around flesh and blood breathing or who was with us was with God in the beginning at the time of creation and now you're saying he's coming to, to be like a, a temple here with us. This is all sounding quite strange and odd. Um, and the other themes that are going on in the first chapter of John as well is a return from exile. Those of you who have your Bibles in front of you, if we go to the section immediately before our section today, um, we're told about John the Baptist, who is as one wandering in the wilderness, and some of us who have done a little bit more reading of our Bible than others will find themselves looking, there, there are some callbacks to Isaiah and one preparing the way, but John also casts, the author John casts the character of John the Baptist as perhaps the first of the Israelites who are in exile coming to a place of returning to uh, a more uh, metaphorical and figurative uh, place where God had set apart for them before uh, their forefathers. Um, we see that John casts off the, um, the labels ascribed to him. All of the people of the day are going, are you Elijah? Are you the one we're expecting? And he says, no, I'm, uh, he says, I'm a voice shouting in the wilderness, clear the way for the Lord's coming. And so if we uh, were that first century Jewish person, we would understand this idea of returning from exile because even though the Jewish people had been allowed to return back to living in Jerusalem, they rebuilt the temple, there's plenty of sentiment that this wasn't the way that they expected God to restore their land and restore their place in the promise set before them through their forefathers. And then the last thing that we're brought to, and, and this brings us to the passage that we're about to dig a little deeper into, is this idea of, of testimony and witness. And as I said before, we've got uh, the author of this gospel uh, giving us some pretty plain devices about how uh, this word is trustworthy by giving us lots of people um, to, who are calling one another together to check this guy out and see for yourself. So, um, ultimately, the, the two things that I see and, and that I want us to focus on 
from this passage. What are the two things that these witnesses are calling us to come and see? And uh, if we go to that slide that was up, yep, perfect. Um, I want to ex- explore these two things, right? I had to sit on this for several weeks and there were lots of different things that popped out that perhaps we could draw our attention to. But I want to suggest for you there are two really striking things that we can um, see that maybe we haven't quite seen in the way that the original readers would have seen and, and see it through fresh eyes. And they are that Jesus has come to set us all free from a kind of slavery. There's um, some really important language and metaphor that we'll get to in a sec that um, conjures up this notion that even though um, the people of God were no longer in Egypt, even though they were no longer wandering about in the desert, even though they were back in the promised land or so-called promised land they're not living uh, in freedom in the way that God had promised them and associated with that the other thing that I want us to explore is this idea of kingdom and that Jesus has come to inaugurate a kingdom inaugurate I I really couldn't find a I didn't try hard enough I'm honest um, find a less technical word but it's not that Jesus is coming to uh, uh, to set up a whole new country and take everyone away to a special little enclave but that Jesus is coming to set up a king a kingdom established over and above all other kingdoms that are evident in um, our own social and political and geo, uh, ge- geographic contexts. So, parking all of that, let's have a look at who our witnesses are, right? So if, if these witnesses are going to testify to those two really important things, then let's get a sense of, of who they actually are. So, uh, from verse 35, we're introduced to a couple of people, and, and what I find really fascinating after looking at this closely for a little while is we only have the name of one of them. Did anyone pick that up as we're reading that through? Hmm? Yeah, some of you have read this before and been around the traps a few times, know what I'm talking about. So if we go to John 1.35, it says, The following day, John was standing again, John the Baptist was standing again with two of his disciples, so we know there's two, As Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, Look, there is the Lamb of God. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. Jesus looked around and saw them following. What do you want? He asked. They replied, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and see, he says. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him to the place where he was staying and they remained with him the rest of the day. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of these men. And what I love is, you know, we could just keep on running with this and forget that they didn't name the other person. But um, what's unique about the Gospel of John throughout the whole book is there's a pretty reliable chance that that unnamed person is actually the author, is, is likely the Apostle John. And when we look at the other Gospels, we're introduced to the disciples while they're out fishing and dragging nets in, And whilst we're not saying necessarily these are conflicting stories, oftentimes it's levelled as a criticism at the Bible that 
the Gospels don't match up perfectly with each other. But remember, if we're not looking at history and we're looking at biography, it doesn't necessarily mean that these two things can't be held up together at the same time as, as being true. And so we often think of, you know, Jesus striding around the docklands, picking out a two, um, un, two or three unkept fishermen at a time and calling them, and all of a sudden they have this epiphany. But what if they're not just fishermen, but they're actually already eagerly anticipating from the Word of God the coming Messiah, so much so that they were disciples of John the Baptist already. I don't know about you, but this felt like a real... Um, sort of way to look at the some of the disciples a little fresh yeah that we get a greater sense of who they were outside of what they were doing with their fish and their boats and their nets um and it's the other thing that we sort of gloss over in some of these accounts and and we see in other accounts in different places in the bible is straight away they're jumping to what andrew um simon peter's brother is uh, said to have said we've found the messiah so what i want to know is how long a conversation do you have to have with someone before all of a sudden you decide that they're the person that you know hundreds of years if not all of jewish history has been leading towards there's a lot that's glossed over here and um we have to uh, wait a little bit longer before we talk about speculating what some of those things they might have talked about were um, the next person that we're introduced to is uh, Simon Peter. And um, a, a lot is made of uh, this section in verse 42 where uh, it's, Jesus is a, uh, reported to have said, your name is Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, or Cephas, I'm told, is the appropriate pronunciation, which means Peter. And I, I can see Melissa looking at me, so I know... I, I, might have gotten it right yet someone who actually knows what these words actually sound like in in their original context but um, a lot's made of uh, the way that this naming of uh, Simon comes in in this gospel narrative here there's a chance that this is kind of just like a way for us as the reader to go oh okay this is this is that Simon Peter this is the guy that we know from later on in the story but there's a lot of contention if you're someone in the Catholic Church or in the Protestant tradition as to what this rock business is all about. And something that really stuck out to me is if we go to 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5, you need to give me two seconds to get to that, and I'll give you a couple seconds to get to it as well. What I found striking is to read that very same Peter write this. You are coming to Christ who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honour. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Though the mediation of Je through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. And so maybe here we're being introduced... To, some, to a character who in the original readers might have even had the chance of reading uh, Peter's original letter and this would have made a lot more sense to them there than maybe it's, met, underst it's been understood by us to now that it's not just about Peter being 
a singular rock on which the church was built, but that Peter was uh, a, a person given a calling, given a new name, given a sense of purpose in, in being a pivotal part of this kingdom, but someone who also well understood that so too all of us could follow and be just like him in relationship to our Father and to Jesus. So we get introduced to a, a couple more people, and again, the, the chain of coming see and, and bringing a friend along, and I've heard this section of the Bible expounded as the simple, the dummy's guide to evangelism, just simply bring someone, right? And you can be as good as Andrew, and look what Andrew did. He brought Simon Peter, and then we got the rest, the rest is history, right? But... Um, the, the next two are pretty important as well, and, and perhaps that's why John highlights them here. If you've read Acts, you'll see that Philip had some pretty cool stuff going on um, during his career as an apostle. And so Philip gets an introduction, so that's, that's interesting. We don't get a lot more than that at the time. But then we get some pretty funny stuff about this guy, Nathaniel. Um, it's perhaps easy for us to write it off as a little bit of comic relief, but maybe John is also saying that, um, you know, look, even some of these guys didn't quite believe it either when we find out that Nathaniel's first reaction is, are you kidding me? That guy's from there? Nothing good comes from there. It's a little bit like us saying, you know, old mate, he's from, I don't know, give me a place that I can't offend anyone with. Anyone? Mount George. I was going to say Boban, so if anyone likes Boban, my apologies. Mount George was said. It wasn't me. You know, it's a little bit like saying, that bloke's from Mount George. Are you kidding me? Like, nothing good comes from there. And I lie because I know some good, good people that come from Mount George. Oh, well, they don't live in Mount George, but anyway. Yeah, well, there you go. See, good things do come. So if you're surprised, then, then there you go. The real life example. But we almost get this as a bit of comic relief before something uh, even more pivotal drops on us about uh, the very nature of Jesus, who he is, and what his mission is all about. So let's look at our two themes. You remember what they were? I heard a no, but I think it was from a child. I like that. Yeah, it was my child. There you go. She hasn't heard this, so... Right, cool. Let's go there. So, going back to the verse 35, we see that John the Baptist tells us, or tells his disciples, and you have to think this is a bit odd, right? Like someone standing on the side of the road as someone walks by and he goes, "'Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world.'" And again, we kind of get a bit complacent about these titles and I think sometimes we mix them up based on where they sort of come and where they're featured. You know, we sung that wonderful song of the image of the Lamb of God that comes from Revelation. But at this time, where the, the story that John is telling us here isn't the one that we suspect the same author is telling us later in Revelation... He's telling us about the account of John the Baptist who says, Behold the Lamb of God. 
And we've kind of conflated that to think, okay, lamb of God, lamb, yep, so sacrificial animal. We know that, you know, Jesus is the sacrifice that pays the price for our sins so that we can have a relationship with God. That's great. But the Jews had a festival for that kind of thing. It was the Festival of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And you know what animal they used in that? Anyone? Not a lamb. Thanks, Leah. Close. Anyone? Goat, right? And it probably, I don't know, I don't find goat, although baby goats are cool, I don't really find goats as appealing um, image-wise. It probably wouldn't have made the Renaissance paintings all that nice if it was a picture of a goat. Um, then we get the picture of the goat and the sheep that Jesus tells later. So, but, so fortunately, we've got this idea of the lamb, and we think it's all nice and cute that this sacrifice is made for us, but it's not the goat that takes away the sin of the people of Israel. This is, behold, the lamb. And what was the lamb most synonymous with in Jewish culture? Passover, right? Just a hot tip. We kind of did this last week, so you guys should be kind of fresh with it, I'm hoping. And Passover was all about It was about, I think I've heard it, it was about leaving slavery. It was about leaving Egypt, leaving captivity. And so if we sit with this long enough and have a sense of, you know, who is Jesus, and again, for me, this is something that kind of sat me back on my seat and gave me those, those goosebumpy feelings when you find something out that you hadn't quite realised about Jesus, that Jesus is not just the Passover lamb that uh, was you know, sacrificed, made for our sins. He's the Passover lamb that we have figuratively painted across our doors that allows the consequences of our sin to pass over, but then allows us also to exit slavery and enter into the land that's been promised to us. And so what, uh, what the author here is is unpacking for us or, or delivering us, delivering it to us with a bit of a sucker punch here. If you were in that context familiar with it, you know exactly what he's talking about, is that Jesus is here to give us freedom. And not just in that personal sense, not just in that sense of, um, you know, now I'm, I get to be right with God and I need to live a, a right and morally pure uh, existence, but no, I'm part of a family that has been uh, held captive, and now I am free. And that that sense of freedom, this value of freedom, means uh, lots of different things to us nowadays. But for us as Christians, we need to hold true to the sense of freedom being that we are free from sin, free from being bound to things that previously bound us, things that affected what we did and the way we relate to one another, and now we have freedom to relate to one another in the spirit and in, in a true and holy sense that uh, God has always intended for people to relate to one another. Alrighty, and then the next theme that we get comes out of... Um, this strange little exchange, what's highlighted in this strange little exchange about a fig tree. And I have to say, like, 
if anyone else has um, stumbled at this section and gone, what, what is this all about? Like he saw him under the fig tree. We have to um, kind of read through the Gospel of John a few times to pay attention to the fact that the author does this a few times where he gives us a sense of telling us that Jesus perceives people's thoughts from afar, that Jesus kind of knows what people are thinking. But it's quite obvious to us that the author is saying that Jesus is God, right? He does this lots of times, no less at the beginning of the chapter that we've already looked at a few weeks ago, but that Jesus possesses that same omnipotence of God that he can perceive people's thoughts. And straight away, that was enough to to floor Nathaniel. Um, But that Jesus really is God, and by equating Jesus as being both God and Messiah, we get this picture of God finally coming to uh, set up this kingdom for us to uh, help us to truly understand um, what the temple was meant to be, The temple was only ever meant to be this foreshadowing of things to come where there was previously separation from us and God and now we can have that same communion with God that uh, Adam and Eve did back in the Garden of Eden. And then we get another little strange exchange as well which kind of helps to tie the picture up but we have to read it to understand the next slide. We get to uh, hear about Jacob's ladder. And, you know, I have to say, like, uh, you know, reading this through, it seems a bit obscure, and it's one of those things that I can gloss over. But I want you to all come with me to Genesis 28. And... Starting from verse 10, um, actually verse 12 is what I've got there up on the screen, if you can read it. I didn't realise the font would be so small. Sorry, everyone. Um, But starting from verse 12, so Jacob uh, has left his father. He's nicked off with the inheritance. Um, He's running away and he has this dream. As he slept... He dreamed of a stairway that reached from the earth up to heaven, and he saw the angels of God going up and down the stairway. At the, stop, at the top of the stairway stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your grandfather Abraham, the God of your father Isaac. The ground you are lying on belongs to you. I am giving it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth, They will spread out in all directions to the west and the east, to the north and the south, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. What's more, I am with you and I will protect you wherever you go. One day I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have finished giving you everything I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I wasn't even aware of it. And then uh, a couple of verses later, in the next slide, we've got at the very end. The next morning, Jacob got up very early. He took the stone he had rested on against his his head against, and he set it up as a memorial pillar. Then he poured olive olive oil over it. He named that place Bethel, which means house of God. 
What's the house of God? Anyone? The temple. Yeah? And so here we have again at the end of um, that chapter, the first chapter of John, where we're introduced to all of these important things. He closes out the chapter by again referencing um, a time or a vision of God setting up his temple to dwell with his people. Um, and, and it's set up in this funny little kind of, you know, Jesus saying, you ain't seen nothing yet, right? He says, do you believe the things that I've told you just because you sa- I said I saw you under a fig tree? Uh, you will see heaven open, the angels of God going up and down on the Son of Man, the one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. And so... It's this pretty stark picture that to us, kind of without a lot of thought, like Jesus says some really weird and confusing stuff, right? But if we sit with it long enough, we don't have to uh, be complacent about it. We can understand what it is that he has for us to see. So to wrap up, um, I'm pretty certain there's a slide there, Ruth. No. There you go. Must, must have lost it in my failing to save it and having to recreate it earlier this morning. Um, there's, there's three things that I want you all to be able to go away with through my rantings and meanderings as we walk through this chapter. I want you to know that you, all of you right now, even though we don't have Jesus for me to take you by the hand to go and see, we have something even better. You can come and see too. Um, You can come and see Jesus, his word. And if I um, haven't done such a hack job, I'm hoping that I'll get the chance to do this all with you again in a different part of um, John. And I have to tell you, when we spend time going through the rest of God's word, it really uh, helps to shine a light on everything else that we see through the Bible. And I can tell you, once you see these things and they astonish you, it's just the natural reaction is for us to want to go and tell other people. And so rather than guilting you into it, I'm telling you, if you come and see Jesus for yourself through his word, the Spirit will nurture within you um, the, the fulfillment of longings and thirsting, thirsts that you have, just like Jesus tells us it will. The next thing that I want you to think about as you leave is that Jesus' death and resurrection isn't just a story about how all of our own personal sins are forgiven. You're being brought into a bigger story um, we, as associated with what I was just encouraging you before, we ought to understand more and more what that story actually means. But at its heart, I want you to think about this story as um, a story of freedom from the oldest chains of all, from the chains that have bound every single human being uh, that's come before us. Um, it, It speaks of a return from desperate wandering that... Some of you might not even realise that you've been doing to this point. And then lastly, I I want you to consider that God's word shouldn't be a barren place for us. God's word should be a place where we can go to be satisfied and comforted and not by the sense of just picking up and randomly flicking and hoping we get to a verse that feels good 
and that's not a criticism because I've tried it. I can just tell you for a fact that the practice of sitting with God's word long enough will help you to become less complacent with it and will let you to find, even in the driest places of your own life and even in the driest places where we might think the scripture doesn't have much to tell us, we can find that it has things that we need to hear. And if, if we don't, we fall prey to a kind of deception that tells us that um, we already know everything that there is to know. Whilst ever that we have life and breath in us, God has a purpose for us. And uh, if we sit with that question of what is life all about, I would compel you that all of us as Christians um, who say that we follow Jesus say that life is about knowing God and glorifying him and allowing him to work in us for our own good and for the good of others. Let's pray. Father God, we give thanks to you that you have given us access to God the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. We give thanks to you that you have given us a, a new and far greater temple than has ever been built by human hands. You have given us uh, the one who breaks down the curtain that has separated the Holy of Holies from us, your people. You're the one who gives us true communion. You're the one who gives us freedom from bondage and slavery. And so we give thanks to you. We praise you. We ask for your anointing and your blessing and that you would continue to guard us and teach us and walk with us. Amen.